0: Welcome to SpyCast from the Secret Files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Mark Stout, historian of the museum. I'm a Ph.D. author and historian who served for 13 years as an analyst in the U.S. intelligence community. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. We're very fortunate today to be joined by Eris Pappas, who was a career CIA officer on the analytics side in the Directorate of Intelligence at CIA. He worked for the agency from 1975 to 2003, and uh, since 2004 now he's been uh, working with Microsoft uh, here in the Washington area. Uh, but the topic of our discussion today will be uh, Eris's uh, time as an analyst uh, in the 1970s and the early 1980s, and in particular, Uh, dealing as an analyst with uh, the reporting and the person, uh, Richard Kuklinski, one of the most famous and most important uh, penetrations that the CIA had of the communist world, and we'll get in a, a little bit more in a minute. Uh, to who uh, Richard Kuklinski was exactly, but uh, first off, Aris Pampas, welcome to the International Spy Museum. Thank you very
1: much. It's my great pleasure to be here.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to work for the CIA in 1975?
1: I was an Army officer uh, serving in Europe. Uh, my, t- my job was to estimate the activities of the Soviet military forces that were facing U.S. Army Europe. And during that time, I made a simple decision that intelligence work uh, was very much uh, up my up my alley i've enjoyed it a great deal uh, and i recognized that probably the, um, the 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 pinnacle of uh, that profession was at cia i uh, left the army and uh, made an application to cia and was fortunate enough to be accepted
0: Do I understand that you were initially offered a job in the clandestine service and Uh, declined?
1: That's close to being exactly right. I I was offered my job as a result of my four years' experience as an analyst of Soviet military forces. When I took the battery of psychological tests uh, that attend the employment and interviews and whatnot, they discovered that, that I had you know, what they considered to be the attributes of a case officer. So they uh, they basically suggested that what I should do is, is dump this analytic thing and, and head over and be a case officer. But at the time, um, it just still struck me that, that I uh, was more interested on the anal- uh, in the analytic side, and so I stayed there. In, but you're right. They, they made me that offer.
0: You were interested in learning and knowing and understanding.
1: Uh, yeah, it's an intellectual voyeur.
0: Okay, so when you came on board the agency, what were you working on? What were your uh, initial assignments and responsibilities? My
1: initial assignments were in what they call the Strategic Evaluation Center of the Office of Strategic Research. This was the principal office at the CIA responsible for producing military estimates, military analysis, military judgments. Uh, One of my first jobs, uh, and it kind of stuck to me without being a pun, uh, was to work on Soviet uh, chemical warfare doctrine and capabilities.
0: And um, you uh, eventually started uh, working uh, on a a set of reporting that was coming out, uh, talking about Soviet military doctrine... Warsaw Pact, military plans, this sort of thing. I guess I've already I've already done it. I've used the phrase Warsaw Pact. You want to describe for people who may not remember or may not have been around at the time what the Warsaw Pact was, and then maybe talk about some of this reporting, that, the sensitive reporting that you started seeing early on in your career.
1: After World War II, the United States entered into an agreement with the Western European Free Countries Uh, that became known as and is still known as NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. This was an organization of uh, mutual defense, and its object, of course, was to defend Western Europe and the democracies against the huge Soviet presence that that existed in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. The Soviets undertook to mimic that, uh, uh, that organization by creating what they called the Warsaw Pact, based upon the fact that it was based in Warsaw and and, uh, had been, I guess, the first meetings or, you know, established in Warsaw. Uh, So the Warsaw Pact was ostensibly the Soviet world equivalent of NATO. I say ostensibly because, in fact, the protections and the relationships between the East European members... Of the Warsaw Pact and the Soviet Union were nothing like what happened in NATO or is still happening in NATO.
0: So the Eastern European "quote unquote" allies of the Soviets really weren't sovereign countries in, a, in, the, in the sort of sense that our NATO allies, Britain and the Germans and the Belgians and whatnot, they were, sovereign were most countries.
1: determinately not allies. Uh, they were they had essentially signed away their sovereignty. Uh, there was uh, something called the statute, the wartime statute of the Warsaw Pact. Uh, that statute, in effect, indicated how the the military relationships would work in the event of a war. And in those uh, cases, the Eastern European militaries would no longer report as independent, sovereign entities in cooperation with the Soviet Union. But immediately, uh, all of those officers and their assets fell under the authorities of the front commander. Uh, in, in the case of most of the time I was looking at it, Marshal Kulikov.
0: So in essence, the Polish army ceased to be the Polish army; it became sort of a, a, a component of the Soviet army.
1: Uh, yeah, in many respects. Yeah.
0: So, so you mentioned this reporting on the the so-called Warsaw Pact wartime statute. If I understand correctly, then that was the re- the the re- reporting we were getting on that from a from a CIA recruited source was just part of a broader stream of very very sensitive reporting that we were getting at the time from the CIA's clandestine service from a source in Eastern Europe, Correct. Um, who later, who, who was Richard Kuklinski, a, a Polish general staff officer. Did you know at the time as an analyst uh, where this reporting was coming from and who Colonel Kuklinski was? Uh,
1: no, not to the, uh, in where it was coming from, clearly uh, it was coming from some kind of an asset in Eastern Europe. Uh, based on the the nature of the material, the the subject matter, and 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 the timeliness of some of the reporting, considering decisions that we know had been undertaken, and then the explanation that would come through uh, via this channel, uh, so where it was coming from, you know, generally speaking, yeah. But you would never uh, heard not, of Richard no, Kuklinski? No, God knows, no one knew uh, who this man or men or people were uh, because that's a tightly controlled issue. There's not any real good reason for the analyst necessarily to know who the source was, uh, particularly in a case such as this one in which the source was so thoroughly vetted and operating over such a great length of time. uh, The secrecy surrounding the person's identity is something that the analyst would respect.
0: You mentioned reporting from Kuklinski uh, coming through a, a special channel. Do you want to just talk a little bit about the mechanisms? What, what does that mean? To a, Explain this to a, to a layman, sort of the way this information would come to you and what, what its physical form would be.
1: Uh, intelligence is like working with an onion. You just keep peeling at it and, and you just keep getting closer and closer to the core. Uh, and every time you take a peel off of it, you discover there's another layer underneath. And you have to think of these security clearances and compartments that way. So you have a certain amount of information that is classified, but it's classified at a level uh, sufficiently low that it can be utilized by a great many people. Uh, But then there are higher levels of classification. Uh, The obvious is confidential, secret, top secret. Uh, There's a difference between those kinds of, of, uh, of, of classifications. Within those classifications, there are these things called compartments. And the compartments even more stringently Uh, restrict access to information to people with an absolutely dedicated need to know. Uh, And in the case of the material that was coming in from Kuklinski, um, there was a separate compartment that was set up with its own code word uh, and reference to that code word uh, was placed on all the material and only those people who were on a specified by name list were authorized to see or use that material.
0: So this is not the code word, but these documents would have come out in hard copy only, right? And would have said something to the effect of top secret rhubarb on them, and it would have been the rhubarb compartment that contained all this particularly sensitive information.
1: Exactly so.
0: Um, And so you were getting all this very detailed sort of internal information about uh, the workings of the Warsaw Pact, uh, this Soviet-led military alliance. Uh, But at some point, the the issues relating to Poland and Poland's place in, uh, in the Soviet alliance came to be an issue. Uh, do you want to just give a little little bit of background on sort of the turmoil in Poland? I know this is not going to be a discussion about Polish uh, uh, politics, but give some basis for, for talking about martial law, which we're going to go into in a minute. I
1: will definitely get into that. Let me, ask, uh, let me add one other point, though, in okay. advance of that. The information that Kuklinski was giving was not just restricted to the Warsaw Pact, which, as I indicated, was was farcical in, in terms of, of uh, an actual sovereign operation. It was very much, uh, because of the Soviet dominance over the entire issue, it was very much keyed to Soviet plans and Soviet programming. So the insight was not simply an insight on an on a essential fraudulent organization. So it wasn't just it about was, the lesser allies, no, it was also about, the, was about Soviet the Soviet Union. it was about the Soviet Union because they couldn't escape uh, exposing their own views, plans and doctrines because they were imposing them on their allies. So when the Allies did any reporting or, or the Allies given the access that they needed to have so that they wouldn't get in the Soviets' way uh, when when and if a war actually started, it provided us with significant insight on on the Soviets as well. So I, I just wanted to correct that because uh, it was much more significant than simply access to the Warsaw Pact. Now you asked about Poland. The Poland. Uh, in the late 70s, uh, the Poles went through their cycle. were beginning to go through a cycle of resistance to to mm. their own government, which was largely a, a, a puppet government, uh, as was the uh, as were the governments of Hungary and Czechoslovakia uh, before in 1956 Germany, and 1968. Bulgaria, East the other Germany, state. yeah, there was even a revolt in Poland, a minor one back in the 50s, if I recall. Uh, this was all bubbling up again in the in the late 70s and into the early 80s under the guise, uh, not under the guise, but under the rubric of, of solidarity, which was a union led by Le- Lech Walesa. Uh The Soviets were very concerned about this because the key position that Poland held geographically um, made it imperative that Poland be totally and completely subservient and, and and cooperative in the event of, of uh, the actual outbreak of a war.
0: What's so geographically important about Poland from a military point of view?
1: From a military point of view, the, the significance of Poland is that it lies smack in between the Western Soviet Union and what what could what should be considered the front had, it been, uh, had there been a war, which would have been along someplace along the German borders. Uh, If you can imagine, there was a huge army uh, that the Soviets had left in East Germany. There were some Soviet divisions in Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Bulgaria, Romania. uh, Not Romania, uh, Bulgaria. Um, The principal force was the the Soviet group of Soviet forces, Germany. And right behind them were 20 Polish divisions with some additional Soviet divisions. They would confront the NATO forces at some place along the border. The idea was, though, that uh, they would be able to uh, uh, defeat NATO based on numerical superiority, largely based on the fact that from the Western Soviet Union, which was on the other side of Poland, Poland's the meat in this little sandwich here, uh, the Soviets would dispatch an entire second set of, of military forces equally strong to the first set, to which NATO had, in effect, no no response capability.
0: And there they weren't. would have to travel through Poland to get to and where the war was in Germany or Western Europe. obviously they had to
1: go from right to left and to do that they had to go through Poland. Now the problem that raised for Poland uh, is multifold. It, it, they weren't simply a pipeline through which the Soviet forces could safely uh, deploy. When you consider the fact that NATO, the whole plan was based on the fact that NATO had no strategic reserve, um, I say that, and it's true in the sense that they had no military reserve in terms of armies, divisions, uh, artillery, tanks, and so on, but what they did have was nuclear capability. So the, the NATO response to an overwhelming Soviet threat of mass was to use nuclear weapons. Those nuclear weapons would probably be the res- would probably be used against that second strategic echelon to prevent its being able to come up to the front and prevail. Now, there are two places that you can strike the Soviet strategic echelon, second strategic echelon, either at their home bases in the Western Soviet Union or while they're on the move in Poland. The chances were they would not be struck in the Western Soviet Union because if that's where they were then they weren't moving and if they weren't moving they didn't represent anything like an imminent threat. Once they started moving, however, they'd be moving across Poland. So Poland was likely to absorb the nuclear holocaust.
0: So Poland was in an uproar. Uh, solidarity, this independent trade union led by Lech Wałęsa, was, was gaining uh, adherence. was getting a lot of following within Poland, and, and there was a lot of political uproar. Right. Um, and so the Soviets and presumably the Polish communist government were very concerned about this. Very concerned. So the, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, and so there were two options then, basic, basic options. The Soviet military might do something or the Polish government might do something. Uh, or both. Or both. Uh, but the,
1: the, the question was whether or not the military would do something because they were being pushed uh, to apply some sort of a definitive solution. Uh, the Soviets were not really impressed with the idea of you know, some set of discussions or talks that would go on you know, in their terms ad infinitum. Uh, and that could result in some kind of compromised solution. They weren't interested in a compromised solution. They were interested in the imposition of a solution.
0: They wanted it their way.
1: They wanted it very much their way. It was important to them, as I, as I pointed out.
0: So now at some point then, as, as this started to bubble or was bubbling, you got a, a new assignment. Uh, by this time, I believe you were working in the office of Soviet analysis, which right. also owned the military forces of those Warsaw Pact countries. Correct. And you got a new assignment. Can you tell us what, what was this new assignment?
1: Well, uh, I had been reading this material that was in this channel. Uh, it was one of uh, several channels that, that uh, you know, we had access to, but it was very, very key, obviously, to Soviet and Warsaw Pact military thinking. Uh, I was called in to the office of my division chief, uh, Ben Rutherford, a uh, great man, who uh, told me that I was about to receive an additional assignment, and that my additional assignment was to be uh, responsible for the reporting on Polish preparations to impose martial law. The Poles had gotten to the point where they recognized that what the Soviets were pressuring them to do uh, could easily require them to impose martial law on the country as a way of of uh, eliminating Solidarity's uh, impact. So uh, those plans were starting to be developed by the Polish general staff. And it turns out that, that one of those compartments that we were talking about uh, contained information suddenly that related to the Polish planning to impose martial law. Uh, it's a very complex thing to uh, to impose martial law on a, on a nationwide basis, obviously. Uh, the military has a lot of planning that needs to be done related to communications, logistics, transportation. Uh, legal issues, actually, uh, do pop into all of this. So there's a great deal of planning that is accomplished. The planning was uh, in the hands of the Polish general staff, and within the Polish general staff, the planning... Uh, turned out to be the responsibility of one particular colonel uh, or one of his principal responsibilities, uh, and um, uh, the story goes on from there.
0: And he was working for us.
1: And he was working for us. So, in effect, uh, one of our agents was was essentially uh, helping the Poles write the Polish martial law plan, and peculiarly enough, uh, depending on the time of day, uh, it became, well, I'm sorry, it became our my responsibility to keep t- track of that thread in that information very specifically. Uh, you know, when we talked earlier about Warsaw Pact and Soviet doctrine and, and operations, you're talking about hundreds of people who obviously have individual responsibilities for pieces of that, air, sea, missiles, weapons, tanks, artillery, but this one particular aspect of it, the Polish preparations for martial law became my personal account. Um and then we started to get just ridiculously detailed uh, information on that and it became pretty obvious that uh, somebody who was either writing it you know, or had access to it was, was sending it right on to us and it was very, very timely. One of the, um, one of the things about human information is that it is not altogether uh, and frequently timely. Uh, it takes time for an agent you know, to contact the uh, case officers in in place and service a dead drop, drop off information. We're still talking about the days when this was done physically uh, and there weren't some of the, you know, the great James Bond gadgets that beam it up to a satellite, bounce it off the moon and, you know, knock it back into Bakersfield. Uh, uh, this was done the old way with cameras and, and microfilm and dead drops and things like that. So uh, it was unusual that we were getting that kind of information so rapidly. Clearly, the agent was taking a chance, um, but clearly this was of significance to the Poles and to the Soviets, given the nature of the material that we were getting.
0: So now you were a military analyst, correct? Um, and it became, if I understand, pretty apparent to you that the capability and at least a serious possibility uh, 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 existed to, to establish martial law in Poland, and a serious possibility that would happen, but other analysts who looked at political or economic issues for this part of the world didn't necessarily agree.
1: True. Uh, Why is that? Well, you know, everyone tends to see the world from the perspective of where they're standing. So, uh, as it happened, we were right, uh, as it it happened, the the Soviet military was actually the vector through which the Soviets were applying the principal pressure and threats against the the Polish government. So, it was Marshal Kulikov you know who would more often than not land in Warsaw uh, with an additional message from the Soviets that and carried the imprimatur of the Politburo and uh, Marshal Kulikov and was meet, who? I'm Marcia, sorry, to I'm sorry, Marshal Kulikov was the commander of the Warsaw Pact overall commander. Overall of the Warsaw. commander, All right. like in the U.S. side, it would be or the Western side would be sacur the, s- the, the strategic Allied, strategic, allied, strategic, allied no, commander in su- Europe. No, supreme Allied, 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 allied commander Command in Europe. You. Right. Okay. So, cou- uh, so, so, so he's the equivalent of the of the Sak, and what he was doing was going in and basically, uh, intellectually and otherwise, beating up on Marshal Yar- uh, General Jaruzelski, uh, who was the defense minister and later, the, you know, the prime minister, I guess was his title, president or prime minister? I think president, but I'm not Poland. sure. Um, it was pretty clear to us who were reading this material and looking at the emerging plans and then reading reports from this agent uh, concerning the nature of Kulikov's messages and the threats that he was imposing, that the Soviets were taking this very, very seriously, and that they were using the military as their principal vector. Now, other people were standing in a political spot, and to them, uh, considering the fact that Solidarity's complaints were largely, uh, you know, political and economically based, there there was a reasonable assumption on their part that the solution that the Soviets would be would impose would be to pressure the Soviet. I'm sorry. The Polish party and the Polish economic organs to ma- to do what they needed to do to to fix the issue. Um, that turned out, of course, not to be right. Uh, it was the military that was that was basically leaning the hardest, and and uh, were, was the chosen instrument, so to speak, of of the so of the Politburo.
0: Now, as all of this is unfolding, and as the the you're getting this very detailed, very specific reporting. Uh, through the sensitive channel about the preparations for martial law, the the martial law plan uh, itself for Poland, uh, unbeknownst to you, presumably, the source, uh, Richard Kuklinski, uh, is who's in danger now is exfiltrated from Poland and is brought to the United States. Right. Uh, I guess this would have been late 1981, and uh, you, not long after he arrived here, you actually had occasion to meet him. Right. How did that happen?
1: Well. Uh, I was sitting in my office and, uh, w- you know, we, we all knew something was up because one by one, two of the analysts that worked with me were called into the division chief's office and sent off to do something, and, uh, you know, an office being what it is, whether it's at the CIA or at an insurance company, everybody wants to know, hey, where are you going? What are you doing? And if the answer is I can't tell you, that makes it more interesting, you know, Uh so two analysts had actually gone. Uh, I'm going to arbitrarily pick the days, Monday and Tuesday. You know, On Monday, one of the analysts had gone. Tuesday, another one had. Uh, and we were all interested to know what was happening. Uh, the two analysts who had gone were, in fact, analysts who were responsible for Soviet theater level nuclear doctrine. And uh, you can see in retrospect why they would be perhaps the first ones to go talk to an asset that might have information along those lines. But the third day, it was my turn. Uh, and, it, you know, just for no good reason that I was aware of yeah, initially, uh, the division chief called me up and said uh, that he wanted me to go m- attend a meeting, uh, interview somebody, talk to him about my account, and come back and give a report. And a oh, meeting by the way, outside of your building. Outside of the building. And, oh, by the way, do what they called an SDR, surveillance detection route. Uh, which is really, really unusual. Uh, a surveillance detection route is something that operations officers do when they're in hostile territory to essentially ensure themselves to the best that they can that they're not being followed physically. Uh, so, you know, if you're going for a 20-minute meeting at 3 o'clock, you leave at noon and spend three hours driving around aimlessly to see if you can find them any cars following you. Now, asking an analyst to do that in, in northern Virginia, you know, is you know really one of the the odd points of an entire career. You know, you've got to be kidding. No, I'm not kidding. You better do the SDR. Uh, That gives you some sense of the degree of sensitivity to which they were treating this fellow. So I did the SDR dutifully enough um, and uh, wound up at this place, uh, which had been designated, uh, knocked on the door and walked into, you know, mildly melodramatic scene. There was this uh, Short fellow with a, with a beard uh, sitting in the middle of the room uh, and behind a desk. There was a, a gentleman who later turned out to be uh, a translator uh, and was a good friend ultimately. And then a, a third person, you know, who, who looked like uh, security. <laughs> they have a look, you know. Um, and it was difficult to get through all of that, though, because the room was actually just blue smoke. Um, it turns out that uh, Colonel Kuklinski is a uh, was a a, a a real smoker, a real smoker, and uh, you know if they could find a way to track concentrated cigarette smoke, you know they'd have a leg up on where he was at any given time. So I walked in and, and made my introductions. Uh, <clears throat> I didn't know who it was obviously when I walked in the room. Uh, I knew it was something pretty sexy given the SDR and and the attendant security, the the safe house, and so on. Um, but once we started talking, you know, I can't honestly tell you how many minutes, but it wasn't more than, you know, a few before I realized precisely who I was talking to. This
0: is the guy from whom all that sensitive reporting I've been reading for, what, five clearly. years at this, six years at this point came clearly,
1: from? Clearly, clearly. And, uh, and, and, and uh, part of it had to do with, with uh, you know, I'd love to take credit and say it was just my intuition uh, or, or my, my intelligence that told me that, but it was also the result of the fact that Um, this guy wasn't wasting any time. He said, look, in the last report I sent, I told you this. You know, (laughs) okie-dokie, got that.
0: (laughs) So you started discussing martial law plans with him?
1: We discussed the martial law plans for quite a while, and uh, it was very, very enlightening uh, because he was able, obviously, to fill out some of the blank spots. It's impossible in written communication, especially you know, brief communications, to give a full appreciation of, of the message that you're trying to send uh, and a full appreciation of the atmospherics, the environment, you know, the significance of this kind of meeting versus that kind of meeting, what, what people were trying to do. We went through all of that, um, but then the most significant point of the, of the discussion emerged And that had to do with the issue of the Poles having made a decision to impose martial law. We, of course, as analysts, were very, very interested in being able to provide warning uh, to the American government that the Poles were about to impose martial law or that the Soviets were intending to invade. Um, You could watch physical preparations for that using technical means, but there isn't the technological means that is available that allows you to penetrate into the decision-making process. This man was part of the decision-making process, so the question that was put to him was when do you think that the polls might actually impose this and do you think they will actually impose it? The relatively surprising answer that came out of that question Was his response that it's not a question at all. They've already made the decision. They just haven't done it. Has been reached, and that all that remains to be done is to wait for the appropriate conditions to impose it. Um, That's very important to us because what it means is there was unlikely to be any further strategic warning of the imposition of martial law, but that we might begin to see it as units started to move and they started to execute the plan that he had, you know, previously given us. So I went back to the, uh, to my office. Uh, Division chief was still there and uh, another SDR, by the way, you know, uh, uh, got back there, told him what I had found out. We considered that to be sufficiently significant because of the reasons I just gave you. Uh, having to do with our ability to provide warning that we wrote a, uh, uh, a, a special item for the president that night that was uh, submitted the next morning and uh, in basically said the intelligence community has found out that the decision to impose martial law has already been undertaken uh, from this point on it's just a question of mechanically imposing it at the right condition uh, and more importantly the, it's unlikely to require you know, some special event to trigger it, so there's not likely to be any, you know, significant warning, and it could happen any time. And that's pretty much what happened.
0: So not real long after that, the Poles, the Polish government, did in fact impose martial law, I believe on December 13th, 1981. Where were you and what were you doing when you found out that martial law had been imposed (laughs) in this country that you worked on?
1: Okay, yeah, I'll give you that story. I was in a Volkswagen Rabbit, a white one of course, uh, heading down 95 from a Christmas party that my wife, my infant daughter and I had attended at a friend's house in Baltimore. Uh, as I recall, it was someplace, you know, past midnight uh, and I was by myself in effect in the car because both my daughter and my wife were sound asleep and I had the radio on as I always do in the car. And uh, we got that, you know, half hour little news burst that uh, at that time was the way it worked. And um, it said, uh, you know, among other things, and in other news, uh, it appears that the Polish government is imposing martial law on the country. Holy mackerel, you know, I couldn't believe it. Uh, You know, how could they do that? That's my account. Don't they have to confer with me before they do that? You know, you get very proprietary about owning information. It's
0: my country. It's
1: my country. It's my account. You know, (laughs) how could they do martial law? So I, um, I rushed to the, um, to the office, which happened not to be on the main campus at, uh, at Langley at that time because of uh, building restorations that were going on, uh, and was shocked to find no one there. I, I, I couldn't at, believe at that was the only one that heard like this, this report. You know, this is the kind of thing that gets people up. Uh, I got into the building uh, and phoned the headquarters on a secure line, and got to the operations center and that's where i found the beehive of activity the office of soviet affairs director was there my division chief was there the nio for uh, for the soviet union was there bob gates uh, uh, there were others there you know basically the the whole leadership that would have any interest in this was were at the operations center and i of course i call in at you know let's make it 2:30 in the morning and i say hey guys you know what's going on jeez where are you what the hell's going And I told them I was at this other building. Well, uh, they immediately told me over this secure phone what the reports were that they were receiving showed that the polls were doing. And I was able to tell them immediately, based on my knowledge of it, because I was the only one that had read all of this stuff. You know, it was my account, and that's what I did. I said, yeah, you've got, you know, steps one through nine or one through eight of the plan and that's it they're in you know in proper order and everything is everything is working that's exactly what you're looking at is the plan and I said you can expect nine and ten you know anytime soon now uh... so they said great that you know that was what they needed me for but they said look get all the information uh... from this highly compartmented source and bring it here because we need to to have it here accessible because you know we're going to set up a task force and do all those things that we usually do in the event of a crisis uh, this an unusual situation in which all the material supporting that task force is at this outbuilding where I happen to be at 2.30 in the morning with a white rabbit, an infant daughter, and a wife all asleep. So I grabbed what they call burn bags, which is the only way I had of carrying all this stuff. It was What's a, a signif- burn bag? a significant amount of material. So uh, a burn bag is a, um, it looks for all the world like a, uh, a plain brown shopping bag just the way you'd get from Safeway before plastic. Uh, Except it's got big red stripes on it that says, you know, burn only or, you know, things like that. So I filled them with, uh, with all of this highly sensitive material, which at that time was about the most sensitive material I had access to in my career. So I filled these two burn bags with it, uh, walked out of the building with the two burn bags.
0: Which is not normally the way you transfer classified documents between buildings. Correct no, me if I'm no, wrong here.
1: No, no, not the norm, not the norm at all. Uh, But the guard knew me. Uh, Maybe that's good, maybe that's bad, but uh, that night it was good. He let me out with these two bags (laughs) loaded with this stuff. I handed the two bags to my wife. She asked me what they were, and I told her that basically if I played my cards right, they could mean a dacha on the Black Sea. You know, But I wasn't about to go that direction, so I carefully, very carefully, at 3 o'clock in the morning, drove from this outside office back to uh, the headquarters all the time looking to my left and to my right, fully expecting some dump truck to come out, smash the side of my car and have all these documents scattered all over Northern Virginia, Uh, at which point it would be a really good idea if the truck had killed me. But I made it back to the headquarters, uh, said goodbye to my wife and daughter. They drove off in the rabbit, and I disappeared in there for the next 36 hours.
0: Just briefly, what was the environment like when you walk into the op center at headquarters in, in the midst of this crisis?
1: Well, I mean, it was exciting. You know, it was it was energized. The uh, you know, I wouldn't call it chaotic. Uh, that would really it really would be unfair. And I'm not attempting to to protect anyone with that. Uh, everybody understood that there was a potential for martial law to occur. Uh, especially the military analysts, we, we knew that there was a crisis impending, uh, and the crisis was breaking. So the question was, did we have the right picture? Uh, were we in fact looking at the martial law plan being executed, or was it something else? Was it a bluff? Was it, you know, was it a, a rehearsal? God knows. Yeah. So all of these things, all these things, had to be sorted out, and people were running around with paper, and and uh, uh, my. Uh, my arrival with the two burn bags <laughs> full of documents helped settle things because now people didn't have to work from memory in terms of, is this part of the plan or is that part of the plan? And if that's part of the plan and that's part A, you know, is, is our B and C forthcoming? And, yeah, sure enough, here comes B and C. Uh, so it was, it was uh, exciting and energized, uh, but, but not chaotic. They set up some rooms for a task force. And uh, down we went and started doing reporting on what was happening in Poland because there was, of course, always the possibility, uh, which didn't happen, uh, so I don't, you know, there's no false suspense here, but uh, history shows there was no public reaction to it in the sense of riots or, or you know, anything like Czechoslovakia. There was no uprising in Poland. There was Poland. no uprising along the lines of Czechoslovakia or Hungary. Uh, the Poles were, uh, in our opinion, uh, pretty efficient at imposing a very complex uh, martial law plan. And, of course, the Soviets were satisfied.
0: Now, to a lot of outsiders, uh, this probably looked like an intelligence failure. It uh, could look that way. You, you have an interesting story about Congress in this regard.
1: Well, it, it, the interesting story is is simply re- reality. When I had written that paper uh, earlier that indicated that there would likely not be any more uh, uh, strategic uh, information that provide, provi- to provide warning of intent... The intent was passed, they, they made the decision to do it, and that the rest would be tactical information uh, that in effect said, okay, here, we're watching them implement it. Well, that's precisely what happened. Um, and so uh, shortly, I guess the next day or two days later, uh, somebody opined that, uh, well, you know, it's another intelligence failure, surprised again, you know, the polls imposed martial law. And um, that thread dropped real quickly because the uh, from within the Hill, itself, the um, and I, I'm not sure which, whether it was the chairman of, of, uh, the, the, chairman the, of the committee, committee. Or, or whatever, but the, the, the word quickly went out, no, you didn't know it, we did, uh, because the information at the time that I wrote that red stripe was, um, was very, very closely held along the lines of that compartment, so every member wasn't told, and, and what may have appeared to be a, an intelligence failure really wasn't in, in this case.
0: Now, Kuklinski is out, uh, martial law has been imposed, uh, but Kuklinski continues to have an important relationship uh, with the CIA for quite a long time after that, and, and right. a professional, and then later also a, a, a personal relationship with right. you. What role did Kuklinski play in, in helping the CIA in its work over the coming months and even and years?
1: A lot of the material that's been produced about Kuklinski talks about and focuses justifiably on the nine years that he spent in Poland uh, actively supporting uh, you know his role as an agent for the CIA for the United States Uh, I see his role as having extended out you know five or six years past that and uh, and the reason for that is relatively simple to understand Uh, Colonel Kuklinski was a graduate of the Voroshilov staff academy in Moscow Uh, the man was a success in his own right this was not a situation in which an individual who might have, you know, veered into sheer mediocrity was somehow supported by, you know, brilliant injections of CIA information that allowed him to, you know, get ahead of his contemporaries in line within the Polish general staff. There was none of that. This man was a was an absolute success. Um, Jaruzelski and company picked him to write this martial law plan because he was their best or one of their best. He was clearly marked for promotion to general officer uh, and he was doing that all by himself, thank you very much. Uh, So, he he had this capability, he had this inherent understanding based on his years and years of experience as a general staff officer of what the Soviets and what the Warsaw Pact were doing and why because he was brought up within their system and uh, the assessment that we made that the agency made, I, I didn't make it, um, was that he represented uh, the next best thing even though he was out to having someone who was still on the inside. Uh, clearly as opposed to an analyst like me who had never set foot in Poland or an academic you know who'd read a lot of books and knew the history This guy was living and breathing and working in that environment, you know, for for the previous ten or more years before he was an agent. So being able to approach him and say, if you were still on staff back in Warsaw, how would you answer this question? What would be the likely Soviet or Warsaw Pact response to this challenge? How would they deal with this technological or doctrinal question? We were able to pull those kinds of answers from him for years following his, his uh, departure from Poland, because he was still thinking along the lines of, of what he had been, uh, and it takes a while to become westernized, you know, in, in that respect. Further, uh, what we did with him was um, uh, this material that I, I talked to you about at the very beginning here, uh, that compartmentation very, very strictly restricts the uh, narrowly restricts the dissemination of that information. So the
0: number of people who are allowed to read it is very small.
1: Very small and, and hence the response from Congress about you know another, another stupid Intel surprise and that sort of thing. Uh, it would be useful however to get a lot of that information out to a lower level as long as it didn't threaten the existence of the source which is the reason it's compartmented to begin with. Nobody owns this information, is making any money off of it. The idea here is that the sensitivity of the information has to be protected and the individual who's providing it has to be protected. And the only way to do that is to limit the number of people that can see it. And, and that's, that's the basis of classification. The exposure of that information would be unduly uh, damaging to the United States' interest and in the case of a human agent, to the human agent himself. Well, he's out now. Okay, so what we had the opportunity to do was over the course of several months, uh, or maybe it took a year, I can't remember, it was a while, uh, we essentially recreated the body of information that he had provided as a clandestine agent in the normal field of secret, confidential, not even top secret, really, so we
0: were able to and take that And there's probably body. hundreds of thousands of people, if not more, who at least theoretically are a- eligible to see secret-level stuff.
1: Now you get that stuff out to all so the So you can really use command.
0: it out in the, all the far reaches of the U.S. government and the U.S. military.
1: Absolutely. And so out it went. And so there was that benefit that we derived from him, and that continued for a while. Beyond that, we, we also had on our hands a, a military officer who was very comfortable in military environments, talking about doctrine and, and, and so on. So we would take him to see and be interviewed by uh, people like the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the Chief of Staff of the Army, the uh, Chief of Naval Operations, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, Uh, and uh, we would take him down to general officers courses at the Air Force, we would take him to the U.S. Army's Training and Doctrine Command, and spend a day, sometimes two, uh, allowing these generals and colonels in those places to talk to a trusted contemporary of theirs who was nevertheless not of their system. And so the the insights and ideas that he had concerning what would prevail and what wouldn't prevail often came as a shock to some of the Americans who who really grew up within a very different system and didn't understand why he was doing it the way he was.
0: So are, are you saying that he believed that if, God forbid, World War III had happened in Europe, he thought the Soviets and the Warsaw Pact were going to win?
1: Yes, he did, which was a real shocker to the Americans who he met because their assumption was the man's a spy, he, is, he has spent, by the way, he didn't like that appellation, so I, you know, I withdraw that one. Uh, so I said, yes, he did. Uh, the, the man as an agent was contributing directly to the United States at obvious risk to his own life, and so their assumption was that he thought like they did. Well, he didn't think like he did. He thought like a general staff officer out of Warsaw and Moscow. And so they would make assumptions and say, hey, we're going to do this, and then he would come back and say, yeah, it's not going to work. And that would really bollocks things up because, you know what I mean, it's not going to work. That's our best planning. He said, yeah, but it's up against my best planning and my best plan-, You know, So you get these head-to-head things going on, and it was very, very useful and insightful. Um, it, little by little, it turned him into a Westerner, but, but it, it really had a significant impact on the officers that he was talking to. There was one occasion that uh, we flew down to Norfolk to speak to General Al Gray, who later became Commandant of the Marine Corps. Uh, General Gray was then what they called FMF LANT, Fleet Marine Force LANT commander, so he owned all the Marines on the East Coast. Uh, The idea was we would have an all-day session with Gray's staff, uh, but the general would only be there himself for the first hour, because obviously Important man, things to do, et cetera, et cetera. We understood that. that, that wasn't the, that, no slight implied or otherwise. Uh, clearly, you know, the FMF Lant is not going to be there all day. So the staff officer told us to expect that General Gray would leave after the first hour, you know, at 9 o'clock or something like that. Well, the first hour passed, second hour passed, the third hour passed, Gray was still there. Finally, lunchtime came. Gray literally pulled his wallet out, called his aide into the room because he wasn't cleared for this information told me to get sandwiches for everybody. We worked through lunch and then around three o'clock he asked us if we were going home that night to Washington. We said no. He said great. He said all the rest of these guys have got real jobs to do and they're going to have to spend the whole evening catching up. You know, (laughs) they spent the day with us. He said, but I want you to go back to your hotel, get rid of the monkey suits, his term, uh, and report to the alternate CP for the Marine Corps Atlantic, uh, you know, which turned out to be his house, of course. Uh, And we're going to have dinner and continue this discussion. So we showed up at Gray's house. Um, We rushed into the kitchen. We all had to put on Marine jackets, you know, the commercial kind, like, you know, ball player type, you know, yellow jacket, red letters, Marines, that sort of thing. He had one that fit every one of us. And we stood around the kitchen scratching the General's, you know, two labs, as I recall, the big black dogs. And then we went out, grilled some steaks. Um, And then repaired to the General's study, which was uh, on the, uh, in deference to the Marines, the top deck of his house, uh, which had a library that was, I'm sorry, it was to die for, to use an overused term. Uh, It was one of the best military uh, doctrinal history libraries I've ever seen in one place. And General Gray, who was up from the ranks from the Korean War, had read them all. And we stayed there over brandy and cigars, the Polish colonel, the Fleet Marine Force commander, uh, my friend and I, Jim Simon, uh, until two or three in the morning over brandy and cigars talking about history and doctrine. it was a great high point. But it is illustrative of the value that this man had even after his departure, because he was able to continue to educate the U.S. military on what to expect from the Soviets and then what they might be able to do to confront the Soviets. Sorry for the long answer.
0: That's fascinating. It must have been a remarkable experience, a you know, personally point. and intellectually. Yeah. Uh, last question, then, since you, you close with Kuklinski. Uh, just, you, you, you knew this man over a period of many years. Kuklinski died in 2004. Um, just at the end, can you give us a, a sense of him as a person? What's he like as an individual? What was he like as an individual? What was his personality? What made him tick? What made him tick uh, in
1: terms of the, the, the discussion we're having was patriotism. Uh, he considered himself a Pole first and above all. Uh, he referred to himself as the p- first Polish officer in NATO. Uh, there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, he was driven, uh, his motivation for having done what he did had everything to do with his opinion that the Soviets had occupied Poland again, um, and, or still, depending on your perspective. Uh, it was uh, not driven by, you know pecuniary interests or anything like that. Uh, The man was an absolute, absolutely driven Polish patriot. Uh, He was involved in what has to be the most nerve-wracking effort, uh, especially over time, that I'm aware of. Uh, As such, it takes a certain kind of personality. Uh, Maybe it takes several kinds of personalities. One type that you could imagine doing this is a... Maybe a California surfer dude who's just not really concerned about much at all, but that would not describe Kuklinski. In fact, it might be easiest to describe Kuklinski as the antithesis of that. Uh, he was driven. He was m- not mercurial in the sense of changing, but, but he was um, he was uh, addicted, I think, to stress. Um, if he wasn't, in, if if something wasn't going wrong he'd find something, you know, to get aggravated about. He was not a difficult man to be with. He was a very kind, friendly, professional. Uh, He was a good guy. It's hard to describe. It sounds very, you know, anodyne to say that. But he was a generally good guy. He got to know my children. My children knew him. They considered him a great friend. We went sailing together, took trips together. Uh, And he was invariably, you know, the, the, the European gentleman. Uh, but when you started talking about Poland, when you started talking about what was happening in Solidarity, when you started talking about the Soviets, uh, you'd see an intensity just build up. Uh, and he 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 was not a very tall man, um, but when you were dealing with him, you didn't get the feeling that you were dealing with a short person or anybody who had a kind of a, a you know a, a, a defense mechanism going because of his height. He, he projected he, he himself. He played tall. Yeah. yeah, he played tall. Um, and it wasn't, a, it wasn't an act. He was, a, he was a very self-assured, confident person. I guess you'd have to be to be in a job like he had, both of them. <laughs> uh, you know, just being on the general staff is enough stress. So he, was, he, was, uh, he, was, he could sometimes be a handful uh, in the sense that, you know, when things would happen, like a review would come out in Poland that was negative to what he had done, you know, he would insist on trying to make a response. I've got to call that guy up, you know, I'll tell him the truth oh, no, take it easy, you know, we don't want to do this, we don't need any Bulgarian hit squad showing up, you know, things like that. So so um, what was he like? He was, a, he was, uh, you kind of sound like the Manchurian candidate. He was a kind, you know, very good, easygoing fellow until you got him on the subject of the substance. And then he, he you could see the intensity that was able to sustain him through the, the 10 years that he was in place and in such a difficult position.
0: Well, Eros Pappas, I really appreciate you giving us insights into the life of an intelligence analyst who uh, was fortunate enough. Actually, it must have been one of the highlights of your career to work yep. on this intensely important, very high interest topic, and also to, to work with such a remarkable individual as Kuklinski and to give us some insight into uh, uh, him as a, as a person and his importance. So thank you so much for joining us here at the Not International at Spy Museum. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we'll see you next month.